Hello and welcome to the Modern Wool Podcast, brought to you by Abundant Earth Fiber. We are sharing the secrets of sustainable small batch yarn straight from our mill on Whidbey Island. I'm Lydia Christiansen. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to Episode 7. In this episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our relentless quest for balance, both in yarn and in life. And this past week, I've been spinning up a huge batch of our house DK yarn we call Verdant. I'll tell you all about that yarn, and we'll dip our toes into the history of a breed of sheep that might be one of the closest breeds to royalty that there is in the sheep world. It's Rambouillet. Before we dive in, I feel like I need to confess, I find it a little challenging to talk about anything other than hand washing or social distancing, right? The whole world is in an uncomfortable state of uncertainty right now. It seems out of place to be talking about our hobbies and our interests when there's such a singular focus around the world. Life as we know it has changed for the moment. Things are fuzzy and there are so many difficult things ahead that will dramatically impact our lives in unknown ways, some more than others. Being a small business does make us vulnerable, but we built our business on the belief that the earth gives abundantly for us to thrive. I've always looked to the natural world for stability in times of uncertainty. Even after the unimaginable things happen, the sun steadily, relentlessly, resiliently always rises. The natural world is full of cycles perfectly balanced to be self-sustaining, including the rotation of the earth, turning in such a way that makes change the constant, repeating cycles of light, dark, growth, decay, renewal, yin and yang. Somehow, it's not the absence of negative forces but the sum of equal opposite forces that actually gives us a sense of balance. We find balance not through sameness, but equality. So no matter what happens today, I'm certain of one thing tomorrow. The sun will rise, and so will we. Balance is one of those great yarn metaphors that's constantly on my mind. I spend a lot of time thinking about each and every batch of yarn that I spin in great detail. And I never get tired of the idea that we have all these variables up in the air from sourcing the raw materials, how those materials are going to be blended, and then how the singles will be spun and plied. And somehow, through all of that, they end up coming together to become something stable, something strong and soft beautiful, alive, and well-balanced. Now, a lot of people think of balance in yarn as to the ply or the twist. When spinning a new yarn, energy is put into the singles as they are being twisted. That energy is unstable without an equal opposite energy in place to balance it. The ply is what brings in that equal opposite energy. The amount of energy needed in plying to balance the twist 
of the singles is already prescribed. It's the same energy that we use to twist the singles, just moving in the opposite direction. When hand spinning, to create a balanced yarn, your ply hand should be about the same as your spinning hand. The amount of energy that you ply is about the same that you use to spin, just in the opposite direction. Again, we find balance not with sameness, but equality. One of our absolute favorite yarns around here, both to spin and to knit with, is our lush, round, three-ply DK weight yarn we call Verdant. We spin it in three neutral shades of white, light gray, and dark gray, and it's a blend of domestic, non-superwashed merino. Pin that. I'm going to come in back and explain what that means. And also some Oregon Rambouillet. We're going to get to that part too. Our Verdant DK yarn gauges at about 22 stitches in four inches on a US 6. And each skein has 250 yards for 100 grams. That is a classic sweater yarn gauge. And this yarn is perfect for sweaters. It's lush. It's round. It's lightly heathered. And I think this is a good time for me to tell you about what we have new coming in the shop this week. When I originally designed this yarn in the three shades of white, light gray, and dark gray, my intention was that they would be fabulous to over-dye. Well, we've chosen five colors for our spring palette, and we're over-dyeing all of the verdant bases. Now you can get those colors online. And if you go to our online store right now, go under yarns, look for verdant, you'll see our five spring colors over-dyed on these three yarn bases. And they are gorgeous. You're not going to want to miss this. They're beautiful. At least just go over and look at them. My favorite are all the shades over-dyed on verdant dark gray because they provide this rich dark shade with bright pops of color where the white and gray fibers meet. All of our new color options in the spring palette can be combined with any of the other verdant shades and over-dyes. So you can't go wrong. All right, let's circle back to the term domestic non-superwash merino. This means that the wool is raised and milled in the United States, keeps our production close to home and our carbon footprint nice and tidy. Non-superwash wool and non-superwash yarn is a confusing term to a lot of people. If you're not familiar with the term superwash, well, then saying something is not superwash can be vaguely frustrating, right? Let me explain it to you in this way. Superwash is the household name for a treatment that's done to wool during processing. Wool that does not go through this process should just be called wool. But the superwash treatment, originally called the chlorine Hercocet process, um, which was developed in the early 60s, has become so commonplace, so ubiquitous, that we now have to find a way to identify the wool that is not pretreated in this way. There's so much of it out there. So what is the superwash treatment? Chlorine-based chemicals are used first to burn the scales off of the wool fibers, after which the wool gets coated in a polymer called Hercocet 57. It's the scales on wool that allow it to breathe, 
keeping you warm when it's cold and wet outside, and keeping you cool on hotter weather. Those same scales on wool also, when agitated, will tangle with one another, causing it to felt or shrink. So removing the scales and dipping the fibers in a polymer makes it possible to machine wash wool without felting. Well, obviously, that has become very popular. It's gotten to the point, though, that we just accept most wool as superwash without really thinking much about what that means. I'm not against this process, but I am against the overwhelming volume of our wool that's being treated in this way. Not all applications of wool require this treatment. So at our mill, we choose to stick to making yarns with minimally processed wool or non-superwash wool. This means that our yarns have a robust quality of life in them that you really can feel. If you're used to knitting with superwash yarns, just because that's what's available and that's what's out there, you really have got to try some non-superwash yarn. It's like eating a warm tomato fresh out of the garden when you've only had canned tomatoes your whole life. You've got to try it. Although the fiber lab is closed for a while, and our kids are home from school like many of yours, and no one really knows how long it'll take to recover from all of this, still, Alan and I are going to be right here, recording new episodes, talking about wool, and serving up something special in our online shop with every episode. This week, get your hands on some of our over-dyed, verdant, DK weight yarn in our spring palette and take advantage of free shipping with no minimum order. That's right. We've turned on free shipping with no minimum orders anywhere in the United States. With all this hunkering down, you're going to need some yarn. Free shipping nationwide, no minimum purchase. Visit AbundantEarthFiber.com for the best small batch yarns out there. Well, I'm excited to tell you about Rambouillet Sheep. We've used this type of wool in quite a few of our projects, and we love it. We got our Rambouillet from a ranch in Baker City, Oregon, known as Jacobs Ranch. Kimberly Jacobs is the farmer, and she's got a fantastic feed on Instagram if you hop over there and want to follow her. Rambouillet sheep are huge. The average weight is 250 pounds. Some of the rams can get up to 300 pounds. The average weight of fleece coming off of these animals is between 10 and 15 pounds. And again, some of them are even more, like 18 or 20 pounds. According to the Rambouillet Sheep Association, the minimum staple is a glorious four and a half inches. I can't believe it. Most fine wools are closer to three and a half or three inches. So for the Breeders Association to say that the minimum should be four and a half inches is really kind of special. Microns in Rambouillet range between 20 and 24. That is so perfect for fine wool. Anything less than that is considered super fine. It can be a little bit more challenging to work with super fine wool because it'll, it'll break because of how fine it is. So a micron between 20 and 24 is soft to touch, soft next to skin, and delightful to work with as a processor. Now, micron is one way of measuring the fineness, the average diameter of the fibers. 
Another unit of measurement is spinning counts. So if you're thinking in terms of spinning counts, Rambouillet would be typically between 60 and 70. Rambouillet and Merino sheep are quite possibly the closest thing to royalty in the sheep world. Their stories are so closely related, it's hard to tell one without the other. So the Rambouillet story really begins in Spain with Spanish Merinos. Spanish Merino sheep were believed to be developed somewhere in the 1100s. For centuries, Spain held a monopoly on these sheep. In fact, it was punishable by death to export these Spanish Merinos. Their genetics were so closely guarded that it wasn't until the 1700s when the political climate started to change that these sheep began to be exported to other countries. The first really major um, export of these sheep was by King Charles III in 1786. He sent 366 Spanish Merinos to his cousin, Louis XVI in France. What a gift, right? Now, Louis XVI was living in a place called Chateau de Rambouillet. And according to my understanding, he was gathering the best of everything that could be farmed. So he had a royal farm at this castle and it had the best plants, the best species, the best specimens of this or that. And he had had his eye on the Spanish Merino for quite some time. So when he received this gift from King Charles, his cousin, I'm sure he went crazy. What he did was um, kept them also very closely guarded in a very proprietary way, developed the genetics privately so that over time, he developed a style of French Merino that was an improvement on the Spanish Merino, both in size and in fiber length and yield. So what that means is nobody knew how he did this, but he was able to do it in such a way that the genetics of what we now call Rambouillet outlived even Louis XVI. And these Rambouillet sheep were larger in size than the Spanish Merinos, so they produced more wool, had higher yields, and their fiber had a longer staple length, like we talked about earlier. Well, in time, everybody wanted these Rambouillet, and they were sent all over the world. And the people purchasing them had high hopes that the French bloodline would improve their native flocks everywhere. It was actually the early 1800s when Australia, one of the world's top wool-producing countries today, got its start in shepherding. It got off to a rocky start. Some of the native sheep that were down there didn't do too well. They needed to be crossbred, but not all the attempts worked. Eventually, some Saxon merino were sent down that, um, that took off and improved the native Australian sheep, the wild sheep, towards the Merino line. Now, from there, often with long wools and coarser fibers, one shepherd in particular chose to import a Rambouillet ram known as Emperor. And instead of breeding these Australian Saxon Merino relatives to long wool, he bred them 
to emperor this Rambouillet. And the result led to many of the sheep that we now know today as Australian Merinos. In the 1800s, American farmers were also interested in using Rambouillet to improve their existing domestic breeds. They kind of wanted to do the same thing that Louis XVI had done with the Spanish Merinos. They wanted larger sheep and higher yield and thought that the French Rambouillet would be an excellent fit. Well, things got a little out of hand in America with the Rambouillet crossbreeding. It began with a rift between farmers who felt that the Rambouillet bloodline should be kept pure versus those who thought it should be crossbred. And here's what happened. The Rambouillet genetics did improve the sheep, but it manifests in lower raw weights. And that translates to dollars. You know, if you sell your raw fleece by the pound, you want a heavy fleece so you get paid more, right? Well, the the sheep were turning out bigger, but with a lighter fleece weight because they were less greasy. The farmers didn't like that. And they actually bred grease back into their flocks so they would get paid more. The Rambouillet Breeders Association says that doing this led to a black crust forming on the outside of the fleece. But the Civil War was happening. Demand for wool was so high and people didn't really have the time to evaluate the quality of the wool. They kept buying it up, and the breeders just kept going with it. It deteriorated the quality of sheep in flocks in the mid-1800s in the United States. Well, it was around the same time that Australian breeders were looking to grow and improve their flocks, of course, and they saw the heavy fleece weights coming out of these American Rambouillet. They saw the high demand for these sheep. And they thought, surely, these American Rambouillet will be great for Australian sheep as well. They started purchasing them, and a lot of them. Wikipedia tells us that since so many Australian farmers believed these sheep would improve their wool cuts, the use of Vermont sheep spread rapidly. Unfortunately, the fleece weight was high, but the clean yield was low. The greater grease content increased the risk of fly strike, and they had lower uneven wool quality and even lower lambing percentages as well. Importing these Vermont sheep almost decimated the Australian sheep industry at the time. Didn't do so great for America either. But fortunately, this small group of purists, who had indeed preserved the French Rambouillet line, got together in 1889. Six members gathered to formally establish the Rambouillet Association. Through meticulous record-keeping, they fiercely protected the future of the Rambouillet line in America. In fact, the original records show that only six flocks qualified as Rambouillet in the beginning. The goal of those six original members to protect the Rambouillet line was carried out so effectively over the years that today, In the top wool-producing states in America, it's difficult to find range flocks that aren't in some way tied to Rambouillet. In fact, one statistic published by Prentice Hall in a publication called Sheep Management and Production 
cited that in 1989, 50% of the wool in the Western United States is in fact Rambouillet. Purely from a wool perspective, from the fiber perspective, the words merino, Rambouillet, and I'm going to include Targi as well, are nearly synonymous. I'm talking about the wool. If you were just to look at a handful of merino, a handful of Rambouillet, and a handful of Targi, they would nearly be identical. The stories of these breeds are different, but the qualities of their wool are very similar. And they're in line unwaveringly with the consumer demand for soft, luxurious, fine wool. All three of these breeds, Targi, Rambouillet, Merino, are closely related and mutually beneficial. From a marketing perspective, however, it's the term Merino today that has become so ubiquitous with consumers, and therefore it has the upper hand. We all recognize Merino. We think of soft wool. In fact, I understand there's been a tense debate going on in the past several years about whether this is right or wrong. Of course, breeders who've maintained pure merino genetics want to protect the name and capitalize on the brand recognition. But labeling practices make that a more complicated issue than simply genetics. Labels on yarn and textiles more or less show the recipe that the mill uses and not necessarily the genetics of the wool listed on the label. I mean, personally, I can't really imagine a labeling system that would require the lineage of the wool being used. That level of detail and record-keeping presents a huge challenge for processors. Sometimes I do have the individual sheep names and the histories. I've gotten to know a lot of the farms we work with but I often don't. Some farms don't keep those kind of records. And even when I do have that information, the wool that I'm using is often blended together in such a way that the family storylines are impossible to track, let alone record on a label. It's even more difficult to track this information in large-scale processing. I think it's fair to say in humans and in sheep, families are complicated. And they're diverse. And the family you come from doesn't always represent the individual that you are. And this is why massive bales of wool moving around our country and around the world are bought and sold based on a diverse checklist of measurable objective traits within the fiber. Core samples are taken of every bale that goes to auction and measured under a microscope for cleanliness microns, staple length, etc. Only in small batch processing do we really have the opportunity to get to know the individual sheep and flocks. Now, I'm not saying that small batch processing is better than large-scale processing. And I'm not saying that large-scale processing is better than small batch processing. I think we need both. And I think it's okay to appreciate both. Each are very different but together they can bring balance to the industry in different ways. Sometimes absolutes just aren't feasible. And we need to rely on a more complicated set of variables or perhaps just our senses. 
I believe when absolutes fail, the best we can do is try and find balance. Not in sameness, but in equality. From our little corner of the world on Whidbey Island to yours, wherever you are, thank you so much for spending time with us and listening to this episode of Modern Wool. You can show your support for the Modern Wool podcast and all the work we do at our mill by sharing this link with a friend. Help us spread the word about sustainable small batch yarn. And of course, now is the perfect time to head over to our shop at AbundantEarthFiber.com and stock up on a sweater quantity of Verdant DK. We love the Rambouillet we get to work with at our mill, and we think you will too. That does it for this episode. I'm Lydia Christiansen. Thank you so much for listening. Listening.